Well, I hope you brought your boots this morning because we're going to muck our way through another chapter of Lamentations. And for those of you that are visiting today, we are in a little short series uh, in this very obscure Old Testament book that is often neglected, ignored, um, doesn't seem to be a, a popular thing to preach about, but uh, we're taking a little break between First and Second Peter because I think this is the language we're learning. Lament is the language of exiles, and uh, we are all exiles as Christians, right, in this world, and uh, we have to get comfortable with this language, even though it is uncomfortable and no one likes to do it. No one likes to go to a funeral, right? But essentially, the book of Lamentations is a funeral. Um, and Jeremiah is mourning the death of a city and a nation, uh, the nation of Ju- Judah and the city of Jerusalem. Well, we're in chapter four uh, today, and I've titled this chapter, Sifting Through the Rubble. Sifting Through the Rubble. And I hope as we walk our way through this, it'll become clear why I chose to uh, title uh, it that. Well, of all the biblical accounts of God pouring out his judgment on the wickedness of a city, uh, the most familiar to both unbelievers and unbelievers alike is, of course, Sodom and Gomorrah. Most people have heard the story of how God rained down fire from heaven and destroyed these twin cities that were notorious for the sins of homosexuality. Before destroying them, The Lord had revealed to Abraham the reason why he was going to destroy them. In Genesis 18, 20, he said this, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. In other words, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was so serious, so grievous to God that he could no longer stand by and watch. And so filled with righteous indignation, God unleashed his wrath on them for blatantly exchanging the natural affection and function of a man for a woman for that which is unnatural. Romans 1 talks about that. And Sodom and Gomorrah serves as an unforgettable example of how much God hates sin and also sends an unmistakable message to all future generations that God will punish sin. Throughout the rest of scripture, Sodom and Gomorrah is referred to over 20 times as a a terrifying illustration of what happens to those who spurn his word. Uh, In 2 Peter chapter 2, it says this, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. On several occasions, Jesus himself referenced Sodom and Gomorrah in regards to the cities who rejected him. Matthew 10, 15, Jesus said, truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Matthew eleven twenty three, 23, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. 
Now, it's verses like these that have given rise to the, to the debate amongst Bible scholars whether there are uh, different degrees of sin which result in being punished in different levels of hell. Well, we don't have time to get into that this morning, but the Bible doesn't explicitly state that there are certain sins that warrant greater punishment than others, but it, it does seem very clear in Scripture that God has greater hatred for the sin committed by his people than the sin committed by pagans. Now, don't get me wrong, all sin is heinous in God's eyes and he will punish it. But when someone has experienced the grace and mercy of God and has had the privilege of being exposed to the truth of his word, their sin is a far more serious crime in God's sight and worthy of far more severe punishment. One commentator said it this way, the sin of the people of God is always the greatest and always the worst. For it is the grossest abuse imaginable of the revelation, blessings, and grace of God. He goes on to say this, sin is bad enough under any circumstances committed by anyone, for it is an abomination to God. But when sin is to be found among God's people against the covenant God, whose love and grace has been known, tasted and experienced so richly, this heightens the awfulness of the sin and the agony of its consequences. And we see here, referring to the book of Lamentations, how God deals not just with sinful people in general, but with his sinful people in particular. Remember, Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 7, judgment begins with who? The household of God. Notice Lamentations chapter 4, verse 6. If you're wondering why I'm coming at this chapter in the direction I am, Notice verse six, for the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of who? Of Sodom. God didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah and neither did he spare his own people from the consequences of their sin. But unlike Sodom and Gomorrah who experienced um, sudden, swift, permanent judgment which is what's reflected there in verse six, which was overthrown as in a moment. And by the way, archaeologists believe that the remains of Sodom and Gomorrah are under the end, south end of the Dead Sea. In other words, it's remained a, a desolate wasteland ever since, never to be restored. And so they experienced sudden, swift, permanent judgment Whereas Judah, on the other hand, expressed the slow, agonizing, but temporary discipline of the Lord for the specific purpose of restoring them one day to their former glory. God wanted his people to get right with him, and the whole point of him bringing the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem and to deport the nation of Judah into exile was to bring them to their knees, lead them to confess and repent of their sins so that they could be restored to a right relationship with him. And so God's discipline may seem severe, but it's only for a season, and it's an expression of God's great love for us and his commitment to do whatever it takes to make us holy. That's what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews chapter 12, talking about the discipline of the Lord. Hebrews 12, 9 
We had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for, a sh- for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed." In other words, don't just lie there under the weight of God's discipline in your life. Get up and move on knowing that he has wounded you ultimately to heal you. One of the most helpful resources that I've been Referencing here in our study is a book called The Discipline of Mercy, Seeking God in the Wake of Sin's Misery. And listen to what the author said. It's really good. One of the basic truths of scripture that we must never forget is that God chastens his own. He punishes and forever casts away those who are not his own, but he disciplines his own in order to teach lessons that, we, that will change us forever. When we finally see the consequences of our sin, we may wish for a quick fire from heaven to fall down and consume us in our pain. In other words, let's just get this all over quickly, right? But God has a better plan, a plan to use a slow burning fire to purge sin from our lives so that we will come forth as gold. Beautiful language there. Well, If you were to outline the book of Lamentations, you could say chapter one is the devastation of Jerusalem. Chapter two is the retribution of God. Chapter three is the expectation of Jeremiah. We saw that uh, last week. And you could title or label chapter four as the repercussion of sin. Uh, we're all familiar with that term repercussion. It's a, it's, a, it's a consequence, right, that occurs sometime after an event or action, especially an un, unwelcome one. It's the backlash. It's the, it's the fallout. And so chapter four is kind of the, the backlash, the, the, the fallout uh, of sin. And, and it just reiterates the fact that rebelling against God inevitably leads to pain and, and suffering and misery, whether it's caused by our own sin or, or maybe the sin of someone else. And you may, may remember that I, I said that uh, the writer of Lamentations, Jeremiah, used what's called a chiastic structure where um, different verses and different chapters correspond or correlate with others. And so uh, chapter one correlates with chapter five, chapter two correlates with chapter four. So we're gonna see a lot of similarities in this chapter, chapter four, with what we already covered in chapter two. And if you remember, I said it was kind of like a staircase, right? You go uh, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three is the, is the top of the staircase, and then chapter four and chapter five. And so last Sunday, we reached the, the climax. We, we, we summited the book of Lamentations. We reached the high point, and now we're starting back down uh, the, the, the stairs as we approach the end of the book. So we're kind of on, we were, we're ascending, right? Now we're on the descent. 
And so you may notice as we go through chapter four today that, that Jeremiah's emotional intensity lessens a bit. His tone is more objective. It's, it's more realistic. It's more matter of fact. And Walt Kaiser says it well. He says this, now that the zenith of emotion and theology has been reached in Lamentations 3, 22 to 24, which I hope you circled, underlined, starred, bracketed, whatever you did, highlighted, uh, this is the heart of the book, right? The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. That is the heartbeat of the book of Lamentations. So he's saying that now that the zenith of emotion and theology has been reached, the intensities of the front steps to that focal point may now be eased and a time provided for quietly mopping up what remains of the grief process. Oh, there's a great picture there. It's kind of the chapter four, you begin the, the mopping up process of, of, of grief. So again, we're, we're, there's a progression here. You don't, get, you, you don't get stuck somewhere in the grief process. Jeremiah doesn't want you to get stuck. God doesn't want you to get stuck. There's progression here. And so now we're on the other side and we're mopping up some things, cleaning up some things. It's, it's like the storm has passed, the, the sun has come out, and now we have to sift through the rubble that was left by the tornado or the hurricane or the fire or the flood. And, and so you sort through the mess to see if there's anything useful or, or valuable, uh, see if there's anything left to salvage. And so part of lamenting the, the aftermath of our sin or someone else's sin or just the, the, the results of living in a sin-cursed, fallen, broken world is objectively processing the consequences of sin and, and thoroughly examining our hearts to see what we can learn from it all. Again, Kaiser said this, some attention must be given to how we got into the situation in the first place if any profit is to come from our mistakes and if any genuine repentance and confession are to take place. Judah didn't suddenly rebuild itself. Loved ones didn't come back to life. Everything didn't return to the way it used to be. The man who spent most of his life drinking doesn't get a new liver the moment he becomes a Christian. The homosexual who's redeemed by the blood of Christ and is on his way to heaven may still get there through AIDS. The criminal who comes to Jesus in prison still has to serve out his sentence. A commentator put it this way, chapter four, though still quite grim, communicates more of a settled objectivity which helps the sufferer learn to deal less emotionally with the realities of life after tragedy. Even after we have turned to the Lord in repentance and faith, embracing his loyal love and tender mercies, the temporal consequences of sin remain. However, once we come to the realization of our guilt and embrace the great faithfulness of God, we find that we've been given all we need to live not as victims, but as victors. Isn't that good? And so let's look at chapter four here, and it really breaks down into three sections. Uh, verses one through 12 are the conditions during the siege, 
when the Babylonians were, uh, has surrounded the city and were laying siege to it. Uh, verses 13 to 20 are the cause of the siege, and then verses 21 and 22 are the consolation after the siege. So let's look at each of these sections one at a time. First of all, the conditions during the siege. And here in the first 12 verses, uh, Jeremiah contrasted the conditions in Jerusalem before the siege and after the siege. He compared uh, Jerusalem's former glory with present, with her present pitiful state. It's kind of like a before and after pictures. Um, if you've ever seen them, sometimes we see these on the news after a, a hurricane hits the coastline or a tornado goes through the Midwest and, and uh, you know, or a fire wreaks havoc somewhere you know, through a forest. Um, and they show you the before picture and like there's all these houses and trees and then the after picture is like where'd the houses go? I mean, there's just foundations and where's the, there's no trees, right? Um, or, or there's just neighborhoods that are just, just all in, you know, rubble, right? Uh, beautiful, nice little suburbia neighborhood. Now it's just completely, looks like a war zone. And so the pictures are sometimes hard to believe. Is that, is that really the same place? Uh, and sometimes they're hard to look at, and we're going to find some things that are hard to look at in these first 12 verses. Um, again, the Babylonians besieged the city of Jerusalem, cutting off all outside supplies, which eventually led to a great famine, and many of the inhabitants died of starvation. And the siege finally ended when the Babylonians breached the walls, looted the city, and burned it to the ground. And those who, were, those who survived were hauled off to Babylon where they lived out their days in exile. And so really what we're seeing, we're gonna see here in chapter four is, is the prophet just describing the fulfillment of the tragic effects of God's wrath that he had warned them about for 40 years if they didn't repent. We don't have time to look at it uh, this morning. I use the excuse, the first service, that I was preaching blind because the clock was wrong and so I just went you know and ended when I felt like I was done but now I have no I have accountability now so I can't do that um, but you can read through Jeremiah Jeremiah 4 Jeremiah 7 Jeremiah 21 Jeremiah 34 everything we see uh, here in in uh, chapter 4 uh, is a fulfillment of specific prophecies that that Jeremiah had made uh, so none of this should have come as a surprise to anybody uh, look at verse 1 how dark the gold has become, how the pure gold has changed. The sacred stones are poured out at the corner of every street. The precious sons of Zion weighed against fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen jars, the work of a potter's hand. So Jeremiah was describing how Judah was once among the nations, what gold is among the metals. And, and precious stones among minerals, but now they were no longer valuable vessels for God's service. They'd become uh, like worthless pieces of pottery. In fact, in Jeremiah 19, uh, it's recorded how God had instructed Jeremiah to go to the potter's house and purchase a clay jar and, and smash it into a thousand pieces as, as, to depict or to picture um, the, the impending judgment upon Judah, this is what's going to happen to you. This is you if you don't repent. Kaiser adds some color commentary here. He says, broken pottery is the ubiquitous 
feature of every tell, which is an artificial mound. If you've ever done any archaeological study, right, it's the accumulated trash of, of some ancient city. They call it a tell. Well, the ubiquitous feature of every one of these uh, that's excavated from the ancient ruins of the Near East is, is broken pottery. Uh, and, and they just toss it aside. It's left like broken potsherds to litter the landscape. What a waste, he says, for those who had been worth their weight in gold. So they went from being precious gold to a piece of, you know, throwaway pottery. Look at verse three. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. So Jeremiah contrasts jackals with ostriches. And, and he says that jackals, which roamed wild all over uh, the Judean wilderness, they were despised, they were mangy pests, and yet even they knew how to take care of their young. Whereas the people of Judah were more like ostriches who were notorious for their cruelty and indifference to their young. You can read about it in Job 39, verses 14 to 17 how they lay eggs and they abandon them. And, and even if, uh, and this is even worse, if, if an ostrich knows their nest has been found, um, they crush the eggs and they go build another nest and start all over again. The Arabs, it's interesting, I read this, the Arabs call the ostrich an impious or ungodly bird. And so for that reason, and so Jeremiah is saying, hey, you guys are more like ostriches. You're not even taking care of your lung. Look at young. Look at verse four. The tongue of the infant cleaves to the roof of its mouth because of thirst. The little ones ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those reared in purple embrace ash pits. There was no food to eat anywhere. And those who were used to eating delicacies were, were left to scrounge for food in the dung pile. Verse six. For the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown as in a moment and no hands were turned toward her. Again, I already mentioned this at the beginning, but the sin of Judah was more offensive, more grievous to God than the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so her punishment exceeded the punishment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Instead of being destroyed in an instant, they experienced a slow, painful death. Why? Again, Kaiser weighs in, he says this, greater privilege brings greater responsibility along with greater guilt when that privilege is abused. Therefore, Sodom experienced more sudden destruction from God, but Jerusalem endured an agonizing torment of hunger and thirst with countless scenes of human grief left indelibly etched on all the survivors' memories. Sodom was spared the heartache. They just got incinerated over, done with. Whereas God's people had to watch it all unfold. Why? Because God didn't want them to ever forget the consequences of sin. Why? So they would never do it again. Look at verse seven. Her consecrated ones were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than corals. Their polishing was like lapis lazuli. Their appearance is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It is withered. It has become like wood. Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger, for they pine away being stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. 
And so the once healthy leaders, and I think that's what it's referring to here, they're now wandering around the city and they were barely recognizable because of their blackened, emaciated bodies. One commentator described it this way, hunger gnawed away at the bones of Jerusalem's citizens. The living envied the dead as they scavenged for food in the city garbage dump. They became walking skeletons. Even maternal instinct wasted away for children not only died in their mother's arms, they died at their mother's hands. Look at verse 10. The hands of compassionate women, they became food for them. Oh, excuse me, the hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. In other words, the natural instinct of a mother to protect her children, right, to sacrifice herself to save her kids, that just went out the window. Things were so desperate that mothers even began to kill their own children and boil them and eat them. Verse 11, the Lord has accomplished his, what? Wrath and has poured out his fierce anger and he has kindled a fire in Zion which has consumed its foundations. God had all he could stand from his rebellious people and he gave full vent to his righteous anger. Verse 12, the kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the inhabitants of the world, that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was a shocking scene. No one would have ever believed it if they said, oh yeah, Jerusalem's gonna be destroyed someday. Nobody believed that anyone could ever conquer Jerusalem, um, not the Gentile nations and especially not the nation of Israel. And yet here it was, the city that was once considered impregnable had fallen. Those were the conditions of the siege. Now let's look at the cause of the siege. The cause of the siege, verse 13, notice the first word, because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. Who or what has caused these devastating conditions? Who's to blame? Who's responsible? Well, it was a result of the sin of the city's inhabitants, but particularly, Jeremiah points out that it was the result of the sin of those who were supposed to be the spiritual leaders. The prophets and the priests sinned Notice it's because of the sins of the prophets, the iniquities of her priests who have shed in her midst the blood of the righteous. In other words, the blood of everyone who has been slain in this siege is on the hands of the spiritual leaders. They wandered blind in the streets. They were defiled with blood so that no one could touch their garments. Depart, unclean, they cried of themselves. Depart, depart, do not touch. So they fled and wandered. Men among the nations said, then shall not, they shall not continue to dwell with us. The presence of the Lord has scattered them. He will not continue to regard them. They did not honor the priests. They did not favor the elders. So the recurring theme here in these verses is that Judah had brought upon herself God's judgment as a result of 
their sin, but it was primarily caused by the corruption of the prophets and the priests who, whom Jeremiah had frequently confronted. And again, we don't have time to look at this, but you can just study, if you ever study Jeremiah, Jeremiah 6, Jeremiah 8, Jeremiah 14, Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah 26, Jeremiah 20, he's constantly confronting the, 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 his fellow prophets. who are saying, peace, peace, prosperity. Hey, don't worry, don't worry about you know, anything, guys. We're, we're good. This Jeremiah guy, don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's overreacting. In fact, we're sick of this guy. Let's kill him so we don't have to listen to him anymore. So these were the leaders who should have known better, but they turned out to be the worst hypocrites of all much like the, the religious leaders in, in Jesus' day who, who he referred to as the blind, what? Leading the blind, right? And, and they were the ringleaders in rejecting the true prophets, whether it was Jeremiah or Jesus, right? Rather than leading them to embrace the truth, they incensed the people to kill the prophet, the true prophet. Like in Jeremiah's day, let's kill Jeremiah. In Jesus' day, let's kill Jesus, so the prophets and, and, and the priests and the kings had all forsaken their God-ordained role. The kings were cowards and the prophets no longer spoke for God and the priests abused their sacred office. And notice how Jeremiah likened them to lepers. The leaders were lepers. Which by the way, what happened to lepers in, in Jewish society? They were ostracized. They were, they were kicked out of the city. They were told to get out of there. Don't touch us. Get away from us. And that's how they were to view the the leaders. They were to avoid them like the plague, if you will. I think this is a good reminder for those of us who have been called to lead. And that's every man in this room. If you're a husband, if you're a father... Um, you don't have to be a pastor or elder or a deacon, or, but guess what? God has called the men to be the leaders in the church. And God holds us chiefly responsible. We are the ones that will stand before God and give an account for our marriage. We will be the ones that stand before God and give an account for our family. We are the ones who will stand and give an account of this church, the men. Kaiser said this, the false prophets were the real culprits. On their hands fell the blood guiltiness for all the men, women, and children who died from the sword, famine, and violence of those days. In the end, they had predicted peace, safety, security, prosperity. Alas, it had not come. Therefore, they deserved not only the sentence of death, which was the consequence of being a false prophet. If you said something was going to happen and it didn't, you got stoned. So not only do they deserve to be stoned, but also the awful responsibility for every single tragedy that befell the people was on them. And then one thing I've always appreciated about Walt Kaiser over the years, and I've read him for years now, commentaries and books, he, he always brings it back to the priority of preaching the word of God. Notice he says this, how important it is to proclaim faithfully God's word. 
What an awful carnage and waste of lives results from the failure of the clear proclamation of the word, even though it may not be altogether to our personal liking. In other words, you may not like what the preacher has to say on any given Sunday, but you should be thankful that he's telling you the hard things if they're in the Bible, right? We need to hear those. He said the responsible agents were the religious leaders of the day who had soft-pedaled the proclamation of the whole counsel of God in favor of what the people wanted to hear. Does that ring any bells? 2 Timothy chapter 4. Timothy preached the word. Why? Because there'll come a day when people will not endure sound doctrine, but they'll, what? turn away from sound doctrine, they're going to accumulate for themselves, they're going to surround themselves with preachers and teachers that will tell them what they want to hear. For those of us that God has called to teach the word, which again, if you're a guy, you have a responsibility as a spiritual leader of your home to teach your wife and to teach your kids and hopefully to teach other uh, folks in the life of the church. James 3, 1, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur what? A stricter judgment. So Jeremiah was getting after his fellow prophets and giving them the what for, and they deserved it. Verse 17, yet our eyes failed, looking for help was useless in our watching, we have watched for a nation that could not save. Here, Jeremiah points out another thing that, that grieved God, and that is that Judah had foolishly trusted in other nations and men rather than trusting in him. They sought help from everywhere else but God. And Jeremiah had warned them over and over again not to trust in Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. And yet they called for the Egyptian army to come and they asked Pharaoh to come and help us stand against the Babylonians. It was a false hope. Notice verse 18, they hunted our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were finished for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the sky. They chased us on the mountains. They waited in ambush for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits of whom we had said under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. And I think that verse 20 is a reference to the capture of Zedekiah, who was the, the, the Lord's anointed. He was the king over Judah at the time. And he was a weak, treacherous leader who condoned immorality and idolatry, kind of a puppet king for Nebuchadnezzar. He blew off whatever Jeremiah had to say. He was the one who led Judah into an unholy alliance with Egypt. And at the end, he split. He took off. He fled into the plains of Jericho, abandoning his post, leaving the people to fend for themselves, and Nebuchadnezzar caught him and made him pay by slaughtering his sons before his eyes along with all the officials of Judah, and then Nebuchadnezzar gouged out his eyes 
and bound him with bronze shackles, took him to Babylon where he was imprisoned until the day he died. You can read all about that in Jeremiah 52. The people were devastated. All their hopes, all their dreams were dashed. Why? Because this was the Lord's anointed. Who they had said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. I mean, he was the very life breath of the nation. The, the, the happiness, their happiness depended on the, 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 the king and he was sitting on David's throne. But when he was captured and brutalized and taken away into exile, it was a picture of the blessing of God being taken away. This was like the final straw. But again, it, it, it was evidence of misplaced hope. They were looking to not only the enemy nation for protection, other than, rather than God, they were looking to an earthly king rather to their heavenly king. And this was absolutely appalling to God. And should, it should have been appalling to them and it should be appalling to us. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter two for a second. I haven't asked you to turn anywhere yet, so turn here because I want you to see this. And I think you've probably already got this underlined perhaps or bracketed in your Bible. It's a very familiar passage. Jeremiah chapter two, verse 12. Again, these are the words of Jeremiah confronting Judah's apostasy. This is Jeremiah 2.12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. So whatever he's about to say in the next verse, it should cause us to be shocked. This is shocking. This is beyond reason. It should cause you to tremble. You say, what could be that bad? Verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This was the, the rebuke of God to the nation of Israel, that they had forsaken him, the fountain of living water, and then they went out to find other things to satisfy themselves. He likens it to finding some other cisterns, broken cisterns. They're trying to go find water from somewhere else. They've got the, they're standing in front of the fountain of living water and they go, yeah, whatever. I'm gonna go try to find, oh, there's a little drinking fountain over there. Let me try to get some water out of that. But then little do they know, all their little, their little cisterns have holes in the bottom. And, and they leak as, you know, as fast as you fill them up, they leak. I think it's a picture of the fleeting pleasures of sin. Yeah, you might get a few gulps and it might taste good for a moment, but guess what? You gotta go right back and refill because it never truly satisfies. This is the language of idolatry here. And an idol is whatever or whoever we trust in or seek satisfaction from or pleasure or comfort or refuge in other than God. 
And God knows our hearts, and whenever we forsake him for someone or, or something else, he will oftentimes strip away whoever or whatever it is that we're trusting in or hoping in or seeking happiness from to teach us to trust and to seek him alone. One commentator put it this way, in his love for us and his jealousy for his own glory, God destroys every earthly thing we may be tempted to trust. He will tirelessly work against each false savior we depend on, slowly revealing to us its insufficiency. How often do we look to others, government, friends, doctors, you fill in the blank, relationships, right, money, and neglect the true and living God. I've been referencing quite a bit the the book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, and Pastor Mark Rogop uh, has a chapter in his book on Lamentations chapter four, which he views from the perspective of unearthing idols. In fact, that's the title of his chapter called Unearthing Idols. Listen to what he said, it's very interesting. Lamentations is a memorial to the futility of trusting in anything but God. Lament shines a spotlight on the things in which we place too much hope. Think of your life as a beaker full of transparent liquid with sediment at the bottom. So he gives a little little picture here, a little illustration. Think of your life as a beaker full of transparent liquid, uh, liquid with sediment at the bottom. If the beaker remains stable and still, the solution looks clear, even pure. However, bump the beaker and the sediment is activated. The appearance of purity is gone. Suffering bumps the beaker of our lives. It stirs up the sediments we forgot about or tried to hide. Fear, pride, covetousness, and self-sufficiency lie dormant, but pain can reveal these covert enemies. Hardship reveals idols. It reminds me of Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse two, where, where Moses said this, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. In other words, God put his people out to pasture for 40 years, just wandering around in the desert. Why? That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your, what? Heart. I find it interesting that in Ezekiel chapter 14, and again, we don't have time to look at this in depth, but you can write this down, Ezekiel 14, verses one through 11, Ezekiel was a contemporary of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. They were all kind of ministering at the same time. In fact, Ezekiel may have sat under Jeremiah's ministry in Jerusalem, and Ezekiel was one of the, the young men that was taken away into exile in Babylon, and that's where he did his ministry of prophecy. His prophetic ministry was all about reminding the people that, hey, this is not the end. God is gonna restore us if we repent. And in, one, in Ezekiel 14, he, he's confronting the, the leaders, the spiritual leaders, and, he's, and he confronts them about their idolatry. But it's interesting, he doesn't talk about the idols up on the hillside, the, 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 the idols to Baal and the, the Asherah poles. He said, I'm talking about the idols in your heart. That's where we live, right? I, I don't think any of you are going home and, you know, got a little idol in your closet that you're bowing down to, you're slipping food under the door to it and things like that. The, the idols that we deal with, right, are, are right in here. 
Brogop suggests five potential idols of the heart that are found here in Lamentations chapter four. Number one, fixating on financial security. Number two, treating people like saviors. Number three, craving cultural comfort. In other words, we all want to live in, in Mayberry. <laughs> we we want to live out in the, in the suburbs where we're shielded and, uh, from all the, the harshness of, of, of a sin, fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. And so I guess the way to check this is when you see on the news the, 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 the story of the mass shooting, another mass shooting yesterday afternoon at a mall, does that cause you to despair or does that cause you to lament uh, when you hear or read about the, the, the next drag queen who's doing a story time at the local library, does that cause you to be disgusted or does that cause you to lament? See, those, both of those things are, are part of living in a fallen, broken, sin-cursed world. And it should cause us, rather than to despair or to dis- be disgusted, it should cause us to lament, to grieve. Number four was idolizing spiritual leaders, putting too much trust, too much hope in your spiritual leaders. And then number five is presuming divine favor. In other words, that, that sense of entitlement that God owes you something, right? And then he said this, and I like the way he, he, he wrapped this whole thought about unearthing idols. He said, maybe your beaker has been bumped. He says, there are important lessons to learn. Allow your grief to show you what is surfacing in your heart. Let God uncover layer by layer the things in which you perhaps place too much trust. Lament mourns the idols upon which we place too much hope. Lament not only expresses sorrow over loss, it also mourns misplaced trust. Lamentations 4 helps us to see the vanity of making anyone, including ourselves, the ultimate objects of trust. So, you could say the cause of the siege at the end of the day, underneath the surface of it all, was idolatry. That they had forsaken God, right? a fountain of living water. Well, let's look quickly at the consolation. The consolation after the siege. And again, in the last two verses, like in the previous chapters, uh, we see a glimmer of hope. And Jeremiah consoled uh, or encouraged uh, the people of Judah with two facts, which were reason for rejoicing. Notice verse 21, rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, who dwells in the land of Uz, but the cup will come around to you as well. You will become drunk and make yourself naked. So first of all, they could rejoice knowing that they weren't alone in judgment. They they weren't the only ones who would be punished for their sins. In fact, Edom would also be punished for their sin. And you say, well, who's Edom? Well, Edom bordered Judah on the southeast. They were Judah's longtime enemies. And the animosity between the two nations dated back to their founders, which were Jacob and Esau, also referred to as Edom. And if you know the story of Jacob and Esau, man, they, were at, they got after each other in the womb. Before they even got out into the world, they were fighting in their mother's womb about who was gonna come out first. 
And so uh, the Edomites were the descendants of Esau, um, and, and they played an active role in promoting Judah's fall to Babylon. In other words, they failed to act as their brother's keeper towards Judah, but rather maliciously gloated when Jerusalem was invaded by the Babylonians. And so Jeremiah said, because of that, God's gonna destroy you. Obadiah, the minor prophet Obadiah, is all about Edom's judgment. Whole book dedicated to their downfall. That's the first thing they could rejoice in. About, but notice the second thing, verse 22 the punishment of your iniquity has been completed, O daughter of Zion. He will exile you no longer, but he will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will expose your sins. So, while Edom will be punished and destroyed completely, Judah will be restored. They would be delivered from exile and someday repossess not only their land but also the land of Edom. They'd incorporate the land of Edom into their land. And so Judah's captivity would eventually come to an end and the city of Zion would be restored. These are the kind of verses we find in the Old Testament that give us confidence that there is a future for physical, national Israel And for our sake this morning, it also gives us hope there is a future for you. There's a future for me. And what I mean by that is whatever sorrow, whatever pain, whatever grief that you're experiencing right now as a result of sin or sin's consequences, this too will pass. This too will pass. God's discipline won't last forever. You can look forward to the day when he will restore you just like he will one day restore the nation of Israel. Psalm 34, verse 17, the righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Which by the way, I think this includes the troubles and afflictions we bring upon ourselves because of our sinful choices. If we cry out to God and acknowledge that was stupid, should have done that. Please forgive me. Uh, I repent, right? The Lord delivers you out of your trouble that you brought on yourself. Notice the word cup there in verse 21. The cup will come around to you as well. You will become drunk and make yourself naked. That cup uh, or the, the reference to the cup is, is, is mentioned throughout um, the Old Testament Uh, It refers to the cup of God's wrath that both Judah and all the Gentile nations would be forced to drink from. In fact, Jeremiah 25 is very interesting. He just says, hey, nations, listen up. Got the cup. It's coming around. Everyone's going to have to take a drink. It's your turn. Now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. No one could escape God's wrath. You may remember when Jesus was in the garden praying out, crying out to the Father in prayer, he prayed, remove this, what? Cup from me. What was he referring to? He knew that when he hung on the cross, he would have to take the cup of God's wrath and take his turn and drink it dry. He wasn't just gonna take a sip. He was gonna drink it all. And Jesus endured the wrath of God against sin 
when he died on the cross in the place of all those who would repent and believe. Listen, God didn't spare Sodom, God didn't spare Judah, and thankfully he didn't spare his own son, Jesus. Romans 8.32 says he did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. And so consequently, those who turn from their sin and place their faith in Christ, become a follower of Jesus, they will never, ever have to experience God's wrath and judgment against their sin for all eternity in hell. By the way, you may not know this, but Sodom and Gomorrah was intended to be a preview of hell. Jude 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. God supernaturally expressed his his anger against the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah by raining down what? Remember? Fire and brimstone from heaven. The same language that's used to describe hell, fire and brimstone. Even in here in Lamentations 4, God's wrath is likened to a fire. Verse 11. The Lord has accomplished his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger and he has kindled a fire in Zion which has consumed its foundations. So God's wrath was like a wildfire that just swept through Jerusalem, swept through Judah, wiped it all out. Guess what? That same wildfire of God's wrath will someday engulf this entire earth And there's only one way to escape the wrath to come. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him, through Christ. I shared a story a couple weeks ago in Ambassador Academy that I think really um, is a great illustration of how Christ rescues us from the wrath to come. Let me just read it for you quickly here. A prairie fire was whipped along by the wind so fast that it overtook everything in its path. One family, seeing the impossibility of outrunning the blaze, began a backfire and then covered themselves with earth as they lay in the midst of that already burned out circle. The roaring fire met the backfire and burned only up to the edge of the burned over area, then went right around it, continuing its hungry race. The family was saved. They knew the only safe place was where the fire had already burned. The fire of God's wrath has touched down at one particular point in history. And when it did, it utterly consumed a man as he hung on a cross. It did not burn a large area, but it finalized God's work of judgment. The fire of God's wrath will come again in history. This time, it will consume the whole earth. Will there be any place to hide? Only on the hill on which the cross stood, there where the fire has already burned, 
Jesus Christ is our burned over area. He's the only safe hiding place from the wrath of God. I commend to you the example of the Thessalonians who Paul describes their conversion with these words. He said, you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Oh God, you are indeed a consuming fire and our silly, foolish hearts are so often trivialized, trivialized that and we forsake you so often to find happiness and satisfaction in other things and yet even so, you graciously poured out your wrath for our sin on your son Jesus. And I pray that that would just fill our hearts with wonder and awe and praise and gratitude as we leave here today and and that we would want to share this amazing message of salvation with others who may have never heard it. And Lord, I pray for anyone sitting here this morning who is still under your wrath because they've yet to believe in Jesus. They've yet to commit their life to obey Jesus and so they're still under your wrath. The Bible says that. Lord, would you grant them faith, would you grant them repentance today so that they could know that they are no longer uh, an object of your wrath, but an object of your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.